On this episode of Hear Tell, we celebrate Mother's Day. Sometimes it was hard to love us, but our moms raised us right. We tried to love them back and make them proud, but for so many reasons, that was easier said than done. My name is Andre Gallant, and I'm the host of Hear Tell, a podcast about true stories and how they get told. We're a project of the Loeb Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program, housed in the College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. You can find full episodes of Hear Tell on your favorite podcast platform. That's here as an ear, hyphen tell. This episode features three writers from the MFA family. Karen Thomas, a 2017 graduate of the MFA, and a journalism professor of practice at Southern Methodist University describes the difficult process of placing her mom in an assisted living facility. MFA faculty member and director of the Southern Foodways Alliance, John T. Edge, questions what kind of son he was to his mother and what that means for his own child. Dorothy Lennon earned her MFA in 2019 and now teaches theater and writing in the Atlanta area. In her story, Dorothy reflects on coming out to her mom as gay and the effect it had on their bond. On this special episode, we're telling stories about a kind of love that created us, sustained us, maybe drove us a little crazy. A kind of love that no matter what, made us who we are. Here's to the moms. And now, our first writer, Karen Thomas, reads Traveling Graces. Long before daylight filled my New Jersey childhood bedroom, I gave up trying to sleep and crawled out of bed. As I tossed my clothes into a suitcase, I heard Mom shuffling around her bedroom at the other end of the hall. Downstairs below us in his bedroom, my brother Barry was up too. Today was moving day. Mom didn't know that. She was awake because she now never really slept at night. With her circadian rhythm erased by her malfunctioning brain, her days and nights endlessly folded into each other. During the day, a steady march of agency caregivers arrived. Mom took long naps in the afternoon from sheer exhaustion. At night, mother and son soldiered through until morning. Barry listened as Mom paced above. At the hallway outside of Mom's bedroom, he placed a portable gate, once used for a long-ago family dog, to keep her from roaming the house. He feared she would tumble down the stairs in the dark. He plugged in nightlights just in case. He worried that she would somehow rest open the front door that he kept locked. He set the alarm so it would go off if she got out. None of these safeguards allowed him to burrow down into deep sleep. Instead, he listened, gauging Mom's mood by her steady tread above. Without rest, his wide reservoir of patience thinned. He slept in his car during breaks at work. The fatigue lived in his voice, a new rasp now attached to his words. We knew it was time. I had already packed her bags and set up her room at Evergreen, the Texas assistant living facility I chose near my home. My mother is a first-generation black American, born to Jamaican parents who instilled a love of flowers. To honor those roots, I made the bed up with a beautiful new quilt with magenta hibiscus tinged in pink and orange. The flowers, complete with green stems, were scattered across the ivory background and graced the matching pillows. 
My husband hung one of my grandmother's paintings, the brown-skinned Jamaican girl with the straw hat and red ribbons, over her bed. I stocked a small red bookshelf with poetry books and stories with simple prose. Tucked in my purse was an arsenal of medicine, just in case she got anxious on the nearly four-hour plane ride. I hoped the transition would be smooth. I tried to manage all the details. Then I prayed for traveling graces. Mom told us this day would arrive. We agreed then to her terms. She would come to me and move into a facility when she could no longer stay at home. We had a plan. That was a relief. We didn't have to wonder what to do like so many other families. We didn't have to wait for some terrible event as a wake-up call, a fall down the stairs that splintered bones, or a fire caused by a forgotten pot while cooking. We didn't have to worry that Mom wouldn't approve. Still, I was naive. No plan was ever really that simple. Now that the time had arrived, I realized we hadn't considered how we would tell her. Her reasoning and judgment and verbal skills were steadily sliding away. Who knew what she could really understand? What if she refused to go? What if the knowledge made her so sad she lost the joy she seemed to maintain? Bowery said it was best not to tell her. Her doctor agreed. My brother was at peace with that decision. Besides, he told me, he believed Mom knew. When a social worker came to the house to evaluate her for the facility, Mom became watchful, wary. She arrived at what he called a quiet acceptance. We told her she was coming to Texas for a visit with my family. She didn't know I was moving her far away from her friends and her sons, her home and garden, her bathtub and overstuffed bookshelves, a life full of people and things that she cherished. I was taking her to Evergreen, a place that seemed nice with leafy trees lining a walking trail, tiny yet clean rooms with twin beds, and sections called houses, and named like some summer resort, garden path, cottage place, and country lane. I couldn't bear to think that she would think I tricked her. It was a new life that I couldn't yet imagine. The truth was, I couldn't even imagine my own life. I long ago took on the majority of the child rearing. My daughters were still young and needed time and attention as they stumbled through adolescence. My marriage felt fragile, strained nearly to breaking point by demanding careers to children and my terminally ill mother. All these years, my baby brother spared me. Karen, I got this, he told me nearly a decade ago. He figured out what to do and guided me when I came home. He told me how to turn off the breakers in the kitchen so mom couldn't turn on the burners. He taught me to play classical music in her room to help her rest. He showed me how to take her downstairs to watch a movie on his huge television so we both could nap late afternoon before the restless night. Now it was my turn to stand at the front line. She was always there for me, although some lessons took me years to understand. One Sunday during my freshman year of college, she called me to say that she quit her job. I sputtered, unable to grasp how I would survive without a working parent. She listened and then told me to figure it out. With her children gone, she found freedom to pursue her own education. She earned first a master's degree and then her doctorate. Along the way, she gave me the gift of independence and the ability to see invisible pathways to my own dreams. What if I failed her, this woman who taught me so much? What if I failed my family? The truth was, I tried to trick myself. I couldn't say the words out loud. 
I could feel the beat of fear reverberate inside of me. I stepped outside the wide covered concrete front porch. Along the porch's rim, Mom long ago attached flower pots to metal chains, and the impatience now spilled over their edges. With Mom beside me, we walked down the three steps to Barry's car parked in the driveway. I climbed into the back seat as Barry helped buckle Mom into the front. We backed out of the driveway and headed down Merrill Lane as her yellow house with a huge Japanese maple in its front yard disappeared. Once we turned out the neighborhood, familiar places blew past. The library Mom walked to when she could no longer drive the Italian restaurant where I had my wedding rehearsal dinner, the bridge into Philadelphia that we crossed for cultural events, and city life, all places my mother would never see again. At the airport, my brother pulled the luggage out of the trunk. I avoided looking at him, fearing that the tears I blinked down would rage out. He hugged Mom tightly and kissed her. I promised to call when we arrived. We hugged and parted. My baby brother drove away in Mom's champagne-colored Honda, the taillights winking as he pulled into traffic. He was free for the first time in nearly a decade to go wherever he pleased for as long as he liked. Our switch was complete. I slipped my my arm into Mom's and guided her inside. On the plane, Mom sat down in her seat. I haven't done this in a while, she said. As we took off, she patted my hand, leaned back into her seat, and fell asleep. Beneath us, the life she knew roared away. I watched her. She traveled like she was crossing an ocean to a foreign country. Travel once gave her freedom. She roamed the world, touring places she read about in books. She ate traditional cuisine in China, danced in Greece, and drank wine in Italy. She fed her intellectual curiosity. She was free from the burden of raising children, from the pain of being a young widow, and released from the constant struggles of fighting for tenure. She was free from being a single black mother in America. We never knew how she afforded those trips. We once joked that she had a slush fund. Like many other black women of her generation who took to international travel, she probably squeezed the family budget by cutting back on groceries, pushed her credit cards, maybe she went to the hairdresser a tad less, or she just shaved what she could out of her slim paycheck. In the early years of her illness, Mom still booked those trips. She made it to Cuba long before its borders were reopened for American travel, and then South Africa, joining tour groups through her university connections. In South Africa, she told me the group took a bus to a township. When they arrived, barefoot children dressed in tattered clothing surrounded them. Out the window, she could see shanties, poorly constructed structures with dirt floors and corrugated metal roofs, where the children lived. She didn't get off the bus. She didn't get out of her seat. She couldn't, she told me. She couldn't bear the noise, the dust, or the press of the children. She didn't want to bear witness to the poverty. I knew then South Africa was her last trip. Her travel joy was gone. She came home weary. Her declining ability to understand the nuances of the world around her probably left her unable to cope with her experience. She stopped being free. When we landed, her eyes sprung open before we reached the gate. We found my husband, Dale, gathered our luggage, and headed to her new home. As we drove, I stared out the window, passing places now only familiar to me. 
the golf course that sat on the outer edge of a huge park, the looming dome of the Cowboys Stadium at the edge of the horizon, and the bakery with delicious cakes, all places she would never know. At Evergreen, the memory care facility, Mom stuck her hand out at the front desk attendant. Hi, I'm Beryl Thomas, she said as she shook the woman's hand. The woman laughed at Mom's formality. Soon, the woman pressed buttons to unlock the door to where the residents lived, and we walked Mom the short hallway to her room. Mom sized up the quilt and the pillows. Pretty, she said. She paused at Grandma's painting. She recognized it. For years, it hung in her dining room until Barry sent it to me so I could place it in her room. I had it framed, but that wasn't why she looked puzzled. Why would Grandma's painting be here? She didn't ask. As we left her room for the dining room, she kept introducing herself to anyone we passed. Hello, I'm Beryl Thomas. As I watched her, it struck me that she thought she was at a resort. She bought the fakeness of the place as she introduced herself to others. That is what she did when she embraced new people in the midst of a new experience. That is why she paused at the painting. Why would the old be amid the new? I have no idea what was served at dinner that night or whether we ate. I only know I left my mother in that room with a pretty tropical quilt and her mother's painting down a short hallway from a door with a keypad that locked her inside. Her freedom was completely stripped now, ripped away when her yellow house faded from sight hours earlier. She knew her home. She was surrounded by the familiar, people, things, and scenery. I think of that as freedom of sorts. Home is our respite from the outside world, and her home still represented that place of comfort, even though her movement was limited by my brother's safety precautions. I tried to recreate that for her in that small room, but that room could never fully be home. I made it to the car before the dam of tears I held in all day sprung loose. This is best for her, Dale said gently. He meant to comfort me, but his words upset me. I was tired of hearing what was best. I know I did what was best for my mother. I know I did what was best for my brother. I know I simply followed the plan my mother created. Knowing those things didn't stop the terror from ticking or the tsunami of grief from exploding within me. I couldn't talk. As we drove away, I turned towards the window and openly wept. Here's John T. Edge reading, My Mother's Catfish Stew. When my mother passed in March of 2001, Blair was on bed rest in advance of the birth of our son. Beginning that January, I'd flinched every time the phone rang. Was she going or was he coming? In-stage dementia and malnutrition took her. That's what my mother's death certificate said. But the past two decades had done damage that an autopsy might not show. By the mid-1970s, when she was in her 50s, tumblers of morning vodka had replaced bottles of evening beer. After I left for college in 1980, my father divorced her and married a co-worker. 
Somewhere in there, she drove her Plymouth Valiant into a ditch and got fished out by the sheriff. By the early 1980s, my mother had wrecked most of her friendships, too. After their divorce finalized in 1982, my mother moved from Clinton, Georgia, where I grew up, to Columbia, South Carolina, where her sister lived. After a stroke in the early 90s, she moved again, this time to Atlanta, Georgia, where I lived before I moved to Oxford, Mississippi. Nearly a decade in a nursing home followed. I don't recall much from that time, but I do remember that early on, a nurse asked me to quit bringing her the mouthwash she requested. I didn't understand until the nurse told me that my mother's preferred brand contained alcohol. Our neighbor Glenn Hunt delivered Jess 11 days after my mother died. Her newspaper obituary said the service would be private. In truth, there was none. Later that summer, as Jess began to sleep through the night, my father carried her ashes back to Bowman, South Carolina, where she was born. In the years since, I've traveled through Orangeburg County on the way to and from Charleston, but I've never visited the grave of Mary Beverly Evans Edge. Her resting place and my responsibility to her had slipped my mind. My mother loomed large in my very small hometown. Frustrated by Clinton, bored by what was expected of her, she worked hard to recast the pageant in which she fitfully participated. Back in the early 1970s, when I was baseball-obsessed, she served as a perennial team mother. When my Little League team won a county championship, she showered us with a bottle of champagne. After some of the parents objected, my mother told them that she had cut the champagne with Sprite. A bright smile creased her face, and she threw her head back and laughed, like Betty Davis in her black-and-white prime. We deserve to celebrate like the pros did on television, she said. And then my mother shook the bottle again, spraying down the few kids who had missed her first volley. Late one summer afternoon, a year or so later, she stood before my Little League teammates alongside a furled American flag in the banquet room of a Shoney's in nearby Macon. As we dug into burgers and shrimp baskets, she passed out Kennedy half-dollars and paraphrased his inaugural address, saying, Ask not what Little League Baseball can do for you. Ask what you can do for Little League Baseball. I was embarrassed by her, but more embarrassed by my failure. We had lost a playoff game. Specifically, I lost the game when I threw three wild pitches in a row and a player from the other team scored from first. Dressed in a red skirt and a white blouse to match our red and white uniforms, her gray and blonde hair tumbling from beneath a ball cap, my mother asked us that day to dig deep and find meaning in that loss. In that moment, she looked so happy, working the crowd, hugging necks, handing each player a round of silver. She was her best self. She knew it, and I knew it too. She was a genius I've come to recognize at recasting defeats as glorious spectacles. Faced with small-town ignorance, 
fearful of what small-town boredom might wrest from her, she did her best to divert and subvert. Looking back, I see my best self in her flagrancy, and I glimpse what my worst self might have nurtured had the darker times in Clinton defined my life. When I was not yet a teenager, as my mother and I ate salmon croquettes and conjugated verbs at the kitchen table, I heard a small pop in another room. On the floor of my parents' bedroom, I found the young man my parents paid to work odd jobs, the black young man my mother called the houseboy. That horrific discovery looms in the stories I tell about my childhood, but my memory only carries me to the footboard on my father's side of the bed, where blood spilled from his head and pooled on the heart pine planks. For reasons I still don't understand, that young man, just a couple of years older than me, had shot himself to death with my father's pistol. Earlier this year, my father told me that the mother of one of my young friends had cruelly spread the rumor that I pulled the trigger. Drink and depression took my mother. She and my father argued often over different things, but most of their fights ended the same way. With my mother throwing herself at my father's feet, like a stock character from a theater production, begging for something she knew she would never get. My father recognized that our home was no place to raise a boy. Again and again, he plotted moves that never came to pass, including an application for a Fulbright to study criminology at Cambridge. And I counted on changes that never gained traction. When I was in my mid-teens, my mother ran out the door with a pistol of her own, threatening to kill herself. A couple of minutes later, we heard a crack from the dark woods. My father and I ran into the night to find her crying on a bench in the rock garden among the azaleas beneath a cedar arbor. A warm pistol lay on the cold ground by her side. About this same time, some of our neighbors began burgling our home. We lived on seven acres out in the county. On Saturdays, those neighbors sometimes waited in the woods until we left for Atlanta. They crashed through burglar bars, broke down doors, axed through windows, and took what they could use or sell, often the stereo components that had begun to buy and trade. This happened so often that my father, who worked as a federal probation and parole officer, had an alarm system installed with a bullhorn siren mounted at the back eave that faced the woods and an infrared motion device linked to the sheriff's office. On the very afternoon that elaborate system was installed, my family returned home to find Lilliput, our blonde and apricot-curled Yorkie-poo, lying in a pool of blood. Our burglars had blasted apart the siren with a shotgun, and when our yippy dog wouldn't stop yipping, they gouged her throat with one of our fireplace pokers, and then they retreated through the woods. Later that same year, the older brother of one of my Little League teammates, who lived on the other side of the woods and who led the burglaries of our home, beat his father to death, doused him in gasoline, and set him on fire just up the road. I learned through the local newspaper that their father 
had been a Baptist preacher. I grew up a country boy, spelunking the deep gully behind our house, fording creeks barefoot in cut-off shorts. I can recall the thrill of swing-blading through privet to make a clearing. But in the wake of those burglaries, the woods became a place of menace. I've carried little knowledge of and appreciation for the natural world into adulthood. Ask me how to name a bush or a flower or a bird, and I blank. Compare a tree canopy to a cathedral, as a friend did recently, and I wish I could see what you see. The country unmade my mother, and it nearly unmade me. On the other side of the azaleas, beyond the clearing, threats real and imagined lurked. Years would pass before I connected the country where my mother went haywire to the country where burglars crouched in the woods. But I knew from the time I was a teenager that I wanted to leave Clinton and those woods behind, even as I longed to carry forward the best of my mother. She gave me much to carry. When I was in grammar school and our high school baseball team played at storied Luther Williams Field in Macon, my mother refused to sit with the masses way back in the grandstand. Instead, she spread a blanket over the dugout. My classmates sometimes heckled us when we scrambled over the railing, for we were nearly on the field and we were surely a spectacle. That was just the way she wanted it. As her thin hair blew in the afternoon breeze, my mother told me to keep my eyes on the field. Don't look back at the crowd, she said. Don't give your detractors an audience. Frustrated by her own youthful failure to quit the small town south, cowed by parents who couldn't understand her drive to be different, my mother had willed me to be different. A small town girl who raised a small town boy she thought that willful difference could serve me as a kind of armor. By the time I entered the first grade, she had tacked a poster to the wall of my bedroom. I can't recall the background image, but I did memorize the text, pulled from chapter 18 of Henry David Thoreau's Walden. If a man does not keep pace with his companions, perhaps it is because he hears a different drummer. Let him step to the music which he hears, however measured or far away. For the longest time, when someone asked about my mother, I told stories like the ones I've shared here, weaving a portrait of a gregarious woman of great social intelligence. She was that. She was also brazen and zealous. I have a photo from around 1976 from what I think was a bicentennial pageant. She had intended to costume me as Thomas Jefferson, or maybe it was Benjamin Franklin. The look was small-town flouncy. Wearing a blousy shirt with ruffles at the chest and at the wrists, my pants tucked into over-the-calf boots, I squint back into the camera. Looking at it now, I can't believe my father let me out the door, and I can't believe how confident and easy in my bones I looked. After I flunked out of college, where I did my best to match my mother's alcohol intake and channel her social skills, at about the time I won my first corporate job, 
I walked the aisles of an Atlanta grocery store with a roommate, picking up supplies for a steak dinner we planned to cook for friends. We had stacked the cart high with artichokes and T-bones and Idaho potatoes and were on the way to the checkout when I doubled back to get a sweet potato. My friend Brant looked at me and asked, Why do you always have to be different? He didn't mean it as a challenge. He wanted to understand. But I didn't know then how to explain myself. This winter, as our son applied to colleges, I went looking for my mother. I wanted to know what she was like before busted dreams and booze and violence and depression took her, back when she was full of promise and brio like Jess is now. Winthrop University in Rock Hill, South Carolina, had invited me to give a talk. When they asked, the conference organizers didn't know that my mother had studied there. I climbed the steps of the library where she had crammed for exams. I peered into the windows of her former dorm. At the archives, I thumbed a yearbook from 1940. My mother, age 17, stared back in her class photo, precocious and confident, pale eyes shining, blonde hair coaxed into tight curls. I inspected a twirler's uniform like the one she wore and a prim school uniform, too. Later, when people asked me what it was like to walk the grounds of her college, I said all the right things. It was emotional. I got a glimpse of her life. I closed the loop. The truth was, I didn't get a sense of her world as a 17-year-old until I quit campus for the Ebenezer Grill, a diner on the edge of town where the owner greets newcomers like me by introducing us to countermates. I met an old guy named Pookie who loved Winnie the Pooh as a child and never shook the nickname. And I met a husband and wife team that sold charcoal at the tailgate of their pickup. I imagined myself sliding into a stool there on weekday mornings. I imagined myself belonging to that place. Like me, my mother loved a crowd, and she would have loved that crowd. At Ebenezer, over a breakfast of liver mush and grits, between sips of coffee, I recognized the common drive to belong in a scrum of strangers and friends, the want to step out of the grandstand and into the spotlight that links us today. Earlier this summer, as Blair and I stood in the kitchen of our Oxford home after a weeknight dinner, I told her about the guilt I carry for shutting my mother out. We display few family pictures, I said. Her style has gone missing from my life, I worried. It's my fault, I implied, that Jess doesn't know much about her that I have blocked her from the stories we tell about ourselves. Blair listened for a while, and then she reached for a piece of silver that had passed to us when my mother died, and she nodded toward a framed copy of my mother's catfish stew recipe, inspired by her father's fish camp on the Edisto River near Bowman, South Carolina. Gently, patiently, Blair reminded me that although she has adapted that recipe, using a more modern one from Scott Peacock and Edna Lewis. The reason we serve that catfish stew at every third dinner party is that we made a decision a while back, during another time of introspection and doubt, to remember my mother in that way. 
What Blair didn't have to say is what I already knew. My written voice, my visual style, my want to step into the spotlight were born of her deferred hopes. My mother would have loved the stew Blair now makes, and she would have loved the life Blair and Jess and I have made together, in which our friends write books and play music and make art and often gather in our home to talk about that work and mark those achievements. Our life is rooted in the small town we claim, but it is not limited by our small town's geographical and social contours. If I try hard, I can picture my mother at our table, spooning into a bowl of catfish stew, talking about the promise of the wide world beyond the South Carolina small town that birthed her and the Georgia woods that entrapped us. Our little family has spent a good bit of the summer plotting Jess's departure for college. On the advice of our former minister, I started writing a sort of instructional manual for him. The accounting, now at six pages, includes how to haggle at a market, how to buy and season and grill a ribeye, and how to mix a Negroni. Blair and I have also been looking for mementos that convey the same thing. We made you and we love you. We hope to help you as you make your own way. And I have begun to reckon with how I might ready Jess to carry forward memories of the grandmother he never knew. What I've written here is a start. For his 18th birthday, Blair and I gave Jess an Alberto Cruz lithograph we bought on impulse after a boozy dinner in Oaxaca, Mexico. It shows a young boy trudging forward under the burden of a house strapped to his body like a backpack. With that gift, which we hope he will hang in his dorm room this fall, Blair and I aim to say, no matter where you go, your home and your little family will go with you. And no matter the future struggles you face, what you gained under our roof will carry you forward. Thinking of my mother and of the home in the woods where I grew up, I now recognize another meaning. No matter where I go, no matter how happy our little family might be, I will always carry forward what went right and wrong out there in that house in the country near Clinton. Now, as Jess packs to leave, I pray that the load we have strapped to his back does not serve as drag, but as propulsion. For our final story, Dorothy Lennon reads, Coming Out. Like most kids, I began losing baby teeth at the age of five. Sometimes I lost them at school, and all I could think about was getting home to put my tooth under my pillow and wait for the tooth fairy to bring me a dollar. One night, when I was six, I woke up to a tooth rolling around in my mouth. It had fallen out while I slept. I was so excited, I ran into my parents' room to wake my mother. Mama, I whispered. Mama, I said again as I nudged her to wake up. My tooth fell out. That's great, she mumbled. 
I ran out of her room down the hall to the bathroom. I wrapped my tooth in tissue and put it under my lifesaver pillow that was no longer bright and colorful. The rainbow colors had darkened over the years from blue magic hair grease. By morning, I hurriedly flipped over my pillow. My tooth was still there. I knew it was the middle of the night, but Mama responded to me. I wondered why the tooth fairy didn't show. I was at the table eating breakfast when Mama came in the living dining area. Mama, the tooth fairy didn't come last night. Your tooth came out? Mama asked, surprised. Yes, I told you last night. In that moment, I knew Mama was the tooth fairy. That was one of the first times I felt betrayed by my mom. The next time wouldn't be until she told me if she wanted three sons, she would have had them. The notion that my sexuality somehow changed my gender was something I never would have expected from her. She was usually sweet. The comment about me being gay was coming from the same woman who on my fifth birthday took me to the Central Carolina Fair after working all day. Mama came home, put my relaxed hair into two ponytails that fell just above my shoulders. She twisted them to the end. She put me in a pink short set romper, white sneakers, and a dark blue jean jacket in case I got too chilly. I was always cold. I rode every ride I could and got my two favorite things at the fair, cotton candy and a candy apple. We stayed until it began getting dark. Mama made each of her kids' birthdays special, which means she probably did something equally special just two days before my birthday for my brother, OJ. I understood the difference between Mama being sweet and Mama having to discipline me. She had yelled and cursed at me before, but this hurt more. It wasn't about discipline. Mama was just being mean. I spent a great deal of my life believing that everything Mama said or did was right. Mama was the first person I had ever admired. So when she reacted the way she did about my feelings towards girls, a part of me felt like I was wrong to like women. When I was younger, Mama smoked Newport cigarettes, watched the soap operas The Young and the Restless, Bold and the Beautiful, as the world turns, and guiding light in that order. Her favorite local news station was WFMY News 2. So whenever I stayed at my Uncle Jerry's house and watched his wife, Aunt Linda, smoke Salem cigarettes and watch Channel 8 News, I would whisper to myself, she's doing it all wrong. Mama had that type of influence on me. But this time, it was Mama who was doing it all wrong. She was forgetting I was her sensitive daughter who needed guidance and understanding, who needed her. It never occurred to me that Mama could have been more upset about me tarnishing the perfect image she worked so hard to create than me actually being a lesbian. More often than not, Mama reminded my brothers and I with a pointed finger in our faces and a curled lip that we had better not show our asses in public or she would wear our asses out. The reminder was irrelevant. We were well-behaved children. However, that same threat applied at my grandparents' house. 
When we get in here, don't you ask for a damn thing. You hear me? You speak and then you keep your mouth shut. My grandparents' house usually felt like a doctor's office where all the other kids got to play while I sat beside Mama. I was a guest at my grandparents' house, but my cousins Chandra and Rakim lived there. Their mothers, my aunts, lived there too. Chandra and Rakim ran up and down the stairs, fixed bowls of cereal that I dared not ask for, and watched TV. I gambled with asking for some water. I think Mama prided herself on having well-behaved children, even at my grandparents' house. But I imagine everyone thinking of us as robots. After the gender insult, I felt as lifeless as a robot. I remained quiet. There was nothing left to say. I stood up without looking at her and walked to my room. My legs felt heavy. My chest felt heavy. I didn't eat that night. I've heard stories of how parents react to the news of their child being gay. Sometimes it was violent. Now that I knew I wasn't above insults being thrown at me by my mother, I expected anything. While I was in my room, my phone rang. It was my dad. My parents been separated for the third and final time, but never divorced. Hey, nutbug. Mama told me what's going on. I stood in the middle of my floor, clenching my teeth. My muscles tightened as if my body was preparing to take a blow. I was ready for whatever he had to say. I still love you, he continued. I loosened up the grip I had on myself. I didn't speak. I let the tears flow silently. You still you. You still the same old nutbug. And if Mama can't see that, then you can come live with me. I felt like I was Daddy's little girl all over again. The acceptance felt like he physically hugged me while wrapped in a heated blanket. I hadn't felt this way about Daddy in years. Growing up, I could do no wrong in Daddy's eyes, even when it came to Mama. One night, as a small kid, I was in bed, upset because no one else was in bed. My mother, father, and brothers were watching TV. I got out of bed, stood in the hall, and said, I can't sleep. Try harder, Mama said without even looking at me. I ran back into the room, buried my face in my lifesaver's pillow, sobbing. I was dramatic that way. I tried again. I stood in the hall. I just don't think it's fair that Shad and OJ get to stay up. Mama shot a look at me that stung more than the whipping she wanted to give. Daddy rushed to his feet to save me. I'll talk to her. He directed me into the bathroom. He was 6'1", but he kneeled to be eye-level with me. His deep and intimidating voice softened when he spoke to me. Listen, Nugbug, Shad and OJ are much older than you. But they have school too, I whined. I know they do. Daddy explained that They had bedtimes too, just not the same as mine. Now you're going to go out there, tell Mama goodnight, and go to bed, okay? Okay, I whined. We walked out of the bathroom. Good night, Mama. I love you. Good night, my ass. You better get your ass in that bed and go to sleep. I was distraught. I ran in the room screaming. This time, I wanted them to hear me cry. Dorothy, Mama called. Yes, ma'am? 
I said timidly. I thought for sure I would get a whipping now. Come here, sweetie. I got out of bed and slowly walked down the hall for dramatic effect. Daddy told me that he told you to say goodnight and reminded me that you don't like to be yelled or cursed at, so I'm sorry. Okay, I said with a smirk on my face looking at Daddy. I ran back to my room smiling. Daddy had my back. Recently, Mama mentioned that Daddy's bond with me was different from the one he had with the boys. Maybe because he had to take care of you on his own. I had postpartum depression, she said. Mama had only realized her condition after she saw Brooke Shields on Oprah in 2005. I was 21 by then. Daddy was always an active father. He was my brother's little league coach. He taught me how to ride a bike without training wheels at the age of four. He held my hand at the dentist when I was 15 and sang Monster Mash and did the silly dance to make me feel better. I appreciated him having my back when I felt like Mama didn't, but I couldn't live with him. Daddy moved out once when I was about six or seven. He moved back in when I was nine. He moved out again when I was 12. That was the last time Mama and Daddy lived together until I was 21. I focused too much on the things I disliked about Daddy. His drinking played a part in the distance I kept from him. I didn't take into consideration that Daddy grew up in an abusive home. His parents blamed him for everything. He and his sister were the ears of the family. Their parents were deaf. Once, my grandpa woke Daddy up in the middle of the night. All I heard was, Harv! My dad said, attempting to reproduce the deaf sound of his father calling his name. The light came on, and I was snatched out of bed. Someone stole the car. We should have heard it. I could see the little boy in him when he told those stories. He tried hard to win his parents' affection, but their love language was sometimes a skillet to the head. Daddy never succeeded in satisfying his parents. My mother recently admitted that she never allowed Daddy to believe he was enough either. She constantly tried to make him her father. My father was perfect in my eyes, and that's what I wanted to Harvey to be. But Daddy couldn't be perfect, and he used drinking to cope with that. Becoming an alcoholic was inevitable, according to Daddy. A relative offered him his first drink at age nine. He told him that he was a kid and didn't drink. You're a Lennon, aren't you? You're an Indian, aren't you? Then you're gonna drink, the relative said. If you asked Daddy about his e ethnicity, he would say he was a black man and only a black man. However, my grandfather told me that he never questioned his racial history. When he was a boy, the adults told him if anyone ever asked, he was Native American. My dad was usually mistaken for Puerto Rican or just biracial, so he never had to deal with the stereotypes concerning Native Americans and alcohol. Daddy shrugged it off, thinking this man didn't know what he was talking about. But everyone in his family drank, and he knew it. I didn't have it in me to live with Daddy and his self-deprecating drunkenness. 
For a moment, I questioned if Daddy would have been this supportive if it were one of my brothers coming out as gay. I never asked. Now that he's gone, I can't say for sure what would have transpired. But it isn't irrational to think he would have called them faggots and punched them in the chest. I didn't want to think about how lopsided the acceptance could have been. I just needed the warm embrace. The next morning, after Mama and I talked, I had class. We lived in an 1,100-square-foot, three-bedroom, one-and-a-half-bath home. It was hard to avoid my mom, but I tried. I showered, dressed, and raced for the door. Mama was sitting in her usual spot on the sofa, in her pajamas. She looked like she had been crying. It was obvious that she wasn't going to work. Bye, she said. Bye, I said without looking at her. I love you, she said. I looked at her for a moment. I love you too. It wasn't the same. I didn't feel that heated blanket embrace I received from my dad. Perhaps I had my emotional armor on when it came to her. I wasn't ready to trust her with my vulnerability. My girlfriend, Rokia, was the only person at school who knew. As the week went on, I didn't think about it much, as long as I was out of the house. I lived my life. That was the only choice I'd given myself. I wanted my mother's approval, but I wasn't going to alter who I was to get it. I also still wasn't sure if I was a lesbian or bisexual. I realized we probably would have had the same conversation either way. By the end of the week, Mama asked to speak with me in her room. She apologized for getting so upset. She didn't like that everyone came to her to talk, but her own daughter couldn't. I searched for ways to tell her that it's possible I've always liked girls, but I had a hard time accepting that myself. Not because I thought it was wrong, but because I couldn't believe I didn't realize it sooner. My crush on Alicia Keys should have been the first sign. I choked on the words before they could come out. I felt different. I knew my friendships would be different. I broke down crying. My mother pulled me close to her as I sat on the edge of her bed. She rocked me in her arms. I'm so sorry, she whispered. I pulled away to get myself together. I've always looked at girls and thought they were pretty, I said while gasping for air. All women admire one another, Mama said. I don't think I admire the same way. Oh, she took a moment to reflect. You're my daughter and I love you. I'm not saying I agree with it, but I am not going to stop loving you. She hugged me. She asked who I was dating. I told her Rokia. She said something about her being pretty in a shocking tone that insinuated that Rokia was too pretty to be gay. She also told me that I needed to be sure I was gay because it wouldn't be fair to Rokia if I wasn't. I chuckled. I wasn't sure if I was straight, but no one thought if I was being unfair to former boyfriends. I decided to stay in that night. I didn't want to take advantage of my mother's apology by hanging out with Rokia all night. But I no longer felt sick to my stomach in the presence of my mother. I wondered if the seasick feeling would occur every time an immediate family member found out I was dating a girl. 
A few weeks went by before my mother asked me when I was planning to tell my family. I didn't sit the family down to tell them whenever I had a boyfriend. Why do I have to tell them I have a girlfriend? They don't consult me with their life decisions. True, she said as she shrugged her shoulders. She remained in my doorway. The silence was awkward. I would normally be the one to break it, but it wasn't my awkwardness to deal with. I let her stand there for as long and as quiet as she liked. You know, I thought it was Danielle, she finally said. Ew, my best friend? Well, y'all are so close. Because she's my best friend. I always thought people were gay because they've been molested or raped. Well, I've been neither, so. So, is this sex? Nope. I'm not talking about this with you, Ma. Okay, okay, I'm sorry, Mama said with her hands thrown up in surrender. She walked away. My body relaxed when she left. Over the next year, my family frequently saw Rokia. Sometimes she visited alone. Other times she came with our group of friends. My brother Shad grew fond of Rokia. We had a family function at the house. It was beginning to get dark outside, around 8 p.m., It was warm, but the breeze in the air was crisp. Shad asked me to take him home. When we got in the car, he asked me to hook him up with Rokia. No, I said assertively. Why? Because I said so. Come on, man. There are a million other girls to choose from. They don't have to be my friends. But, I cut him off. Look, she wouldn't like you anyway. How do you know? Because you're not her type. No man is. It was silent. I don't remember hearing the radio, but I'm certain it was on. Wait, so she likes girls? Yes. I gripped the steering wheel hard. I braced myself for the follow-up question. Now I knew the seasick feeling would appear every time I had to have this conversation. Does she like you? He asked slowly. Yes. Okay. Whew. Can I light a cigarette in your car? Normally, no. But yeah, roll down the window. Do you like her back? Yes. Shaw took puffs of his cigarette faster than I had ever seen him do before. He made sure to blow the smoke out of the window. Shaw couldn't hide his emotions. He has the biggest eyes, and he uses them to make expressions. He either made you laugh or worried the hell out of you. I was worried. I realized I cared about what Shaw thought. Shaw was like a second father to me. He was six years older than I was. He babysat me, taught me how to cook breakfast when I was eight. He did dangerous magic tricks when I, with a can of brute and a lighter for my amusement. So what? You don't love me anymore? I said defensively. Of course I do. I'm always love you. Just don't grow a beard. I tilted my head to the side, the way dogs do when they're perplexed. Then I chuckled. My chuckle grew into belting laughter, and he joined me. The thought of two women being intimate with one another must have meant to my family that one had to become a man. Shad's comment was just as ridiculous as Mama's comment. But his made me laugh. It's been 15 years since Mama pulled me out of the closet. 
She's the sweet and understanding person I've always known. But I haven't truly embraced my love for women until recently. I thought I had, but I was only free in the company of like-minded people. Now, I'm married, and I can't stop saying wife. My mother and oldest niece attended our union via FaceTime. We went to the Justice of the Peace. My mother and my wife, Dundrell, are like best friends. She introduces Dundrell as my wife and corrects people who calls her my friend. I had to stop Aunt Ruby from calling Dundrell your friend. I said, you know, if you were somebody's wife and people referred to you as his friend, you would be upset. Dundrell is Dorothy's wife. I raised my eyebrows in disbelief. Mama has respected my relationship with women for years. Dondrell is the second woman to have lived in Mama's house. Now, Mama is making everyone around her to respect my relationship as well. To know she corrected Aunt Ruby took me back to childhood when I admired her so much. This time, Mama was right. You've been listening to Hear Tell. Thanks to our readers, Karen Thomas, John T. Edge, and Dorothy Lennon. Subscribe to Hear Tell on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll find extensive interviews with these writers and many more. My name is Andre Gallant, and I'm the host and producer of this podcast. We're a project of the Low Residency MFA and Narrative Nonfiction Program, housed in the College of Journalism at the University of Georgia. And if you want to learn more, visit bit.ly slash heartellpodcast. That's bit.ly slash heartellpodcast. Hear Tell will be back soon with another true story.